Thank you for calling Gaywire. Your call is very important to us. Press 1 for fourth wave feminism. Press 2 for a strangely in-depth discussion about where the worms have gone. Press 3 for... You have chosen option 3. Please stay on the line. Hello and thank you for choosing option 3. You've reached Gaywire, where everything is at least a little bit queer. This is your hot and humble host, Terrence Adams, and my pronouns are they, them, and he, him. Use them interchangeably and wisely, please, and thank you kindly. Gaywire is, of course, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Amiskwichewiskigan, colonially known as Edmonton, on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta. This week is a special week, the week where we will be starting our mega-long series on disability justice, though this is clearly also connected to our conversations of self-care and community care. Um, and to help guide us through, we have with us again, Q. Q Lawrence, that is a lovely, lovely queer crib activist you've heard me mention on the show time and time again. Speaking of, Q is still raising money so that it can get a new wheelchair, so head on over to Gaywire's Instagram at GaywireCJSR and click the link in our bio to be redirected to Q's fundraiser. Now, a quick moment of mourning for the Queer Youth Prom, which again, due to COVID, is unable to happen this year. This is sad, of course, but it gives us the opportunity to reevaluate how these events should look in 2022, 2023, and onwards in terms of accessibility, and how we can have community events and connection regardless of access restrictions or needs. We just have to get creative, my friends. Community is so important, and please, please, please do not lose sight of that. We all deserve care in all its forms, so I truly hope that in 2023, the Queer Youth Prom will return in whatever form it is able. Speaking of care, the Community Fridge is a wonderful example of mutual aid and is located outside of the Earth's General Store. They've been running for a while now. They take fresh vegan donations, so stop by and donate. A free fridge is particularly great because anyone can access it regardless of anything, really. It's radically accessible, which is amazing. And speaking of amazing, a big, big shout-out celebration to Pride Corner for becoming officially recognized by the city of Edmonton. Pride Corner, White Ave and 104th Street, is, of course, the location of the counter-protest started by Claire Pearson, which has grown into a vibrant gathering place for all queer and trans folks, but with an emphasis on youth. There aren't many places for queer and trans folks to gather in the city due to COVID and other things, but the Pride Corner has shown up for the Edmonton queer community in a real and tangible way. In a real and tangible way. The formal recognition of this is wonderful, so head on over to Pride Corner 
now officially recognized by the city of Edmonton, on Fridays and see what's poppin'. Again, that's White Ave and 104th Street. And additionally, if you're in the area of Pride Corner, head on over to the Quilt Bag for all of your queer and trans needs, specifically trans in this case, as the Quilt Bag now has trans tape. Trans tape can be used by transmasculine folks to bind or compress. Trans tape can be used by transmasculine folks to bind or compress their chest and is an alternative to a binder, the compressive garment typically worn to compress the chest. Binders can get hot, and with the summer fast approaching, it might be time to check out a binding alternative without being subject to all of those pesky shipping fees. And also, you can pay with cash at the quilt bag. So, go to the quilt bag for trans tape and all of their other great stuff, too. And one final announcement. There is a zine seeking submissions. TransCare Plus is a community-based and run organization which aims to center decolonized community-focused care, care specific to trans and gender diverse folks. The zine in question seeks to highlight trans experiences with care. So send in your text or image-based submissions to hello at transcareplus.org. Submissions are due May 20th, so be quick. The theme is care, trans care, diverse care. How does it manifest for you? That sort of thing. Go to Instagram at transcareplus for more details. Now, before we hear from Q, I'd like to give everyone a few refreshers so we are all on the same page to start the topic that we are speaking about is made or medically assisted dying. We discuss a lot of what made is and what Bill C-7 is, but for those who haven't heard of any of this before, here's the tea. In March 2021, Bill C-7 was passed, which expanded the criteria for those accessing MAID from just terminally ill people to folks with physical disabilities whose disability causes them, quote, intolerable suffering, end quote. And that is the language used in the bill, and it is set to be expanded even further to include intolerable suffering from irremediable mental illness. And I myself am part of that population of irremediable irremediable irremedial, irremedial, and grievous mental illness, so my own investment in this policy cannot be ignored. But that's just the gist. Q will explain more. Something else we need to be aware of are the principles of disability justice. There are 10 of them, and I am getting this information directly from the Sins Invalid website. Uh, sinsinvalid.org, where a lot of the work by Patty Byrne and Sins Invalid and other amazing activists have been accumulated. Um, so here is that incredible information. The 10 principles of disability justice. Number one is intersectionality, because we do not live single issue lives. The second is leadership of those most impacted. We are led by those who most know these systems. Aurora Levins Morales. The third principle is anti-capitalism. 
because capitalism is in, in an economy that sees land and humans as components of profit, where the human body is commodified, we are anti-capitalist by the nature of having non-conforming body minds. The fourth is commitment to cross-movement organizing, because, again, uh, cross-movement organizing, because shifting how social justice movements understand disability and contextualize ableism, disability justice lends itself to politics of alliance. Uh, the next one is recognizing wholeness, that people have inherent worth outside of commodity relations and capitalist notions of productivity. Each person is full of history and life experience and is a whole, valuable person. Then the next is sustainability. So it's important with disability justice that we pace ourselves individually and collectively to so that the work can be sustained long term. The next is commitment to cross-disability solidarity, which honors the insights and participation of all community members, knowing that isolation undermines collective liberation. Then interdependence, because we can meet each other's needs as we build toward liberation, knowing that state solutions inevitably extend into further control over lives. Then collective access. Collective access is the idea of radical accessibility, the idea that we all bring different experiences to the table, and we bring flexibility and creative nuance that go beyond the able-body-minded normativity. And it's to be in community with each other. And the final principle is collective liberation. No body or mind can be left behind. Only moving together can we accomplish the revolution we require. So again, those are the 10 principles of disability justice. You can check out sinsinvalid.org for that information and more. And if you want to find out more about the organization Sins Invalid itself, um, check out the amazing book Crip Kinship by Dr. Shada Kafai, available wherever you get your books. Um, though if you're looking to shop local, check out the Glass Bookshop. All right. So those are the values, the disability justice values that are informing Q's work and the work of many other amazing disabled activists out there. We are all body minds, complex and whole. And disability justice challenges the idea of made by asking what is an intolerable quality of life and why has it gotten so bad? It critically engages with um, those ideas of intolerable suffering. And so to answer that question, I do recommend checking out the disabilityfilibuster.ca to either sign up for new sessions or to watch archived footage. There are lots of amazing speakers talking about medical ableism, everyday ableism, and more. So definitely check it out as it will help to contextualize made in a much more tangible and real way. Now, before we begin part one of the chat with Q, I know I keep, I just keep talking. Um, this chat from Q is from way back in October, so I want to give a bit of a content warning. Um, so made is a topic that is heavy, and it really truly just gets heavier. Um, our conversation does talk, 
touch on medical ableism, eugenics, suicide survival work, and later on some reclamation of slurs. So please take care of your body minds, take a break if you need to, but also know that this is important and affecting real lives right now. Without further ado, here's myself, Terrence Adams, speaking with Q Lawrence, part one of the interview from fall 2021. Uh, my name is Q, and I use they or it pronouns. I'm in so-called Chilliwack in BC. Um, it's the land of the Chiquayuk and Palalt tribes of the Stolo Nation. I'm a performing artist. I do installation art. I'm also a disability educator um, and consultant. And I also run a free fridge, like a community fridge out here. Um, I'm part of the defund police organizing out here. Um, that goes hand in hand with like all kinds of abolition stuff that we're trying to get going. Um, and everything that I do is like, very much based in disability organizing. Um, so my priorities are always access and like radical access, open access, um, as well as making sure that no one is left behind and that the people who are most affected by um, by any topic or, or area that is being organized around are the ones leading it. Um, so like that's the broad people of what I do. Um, yeah, there's there's a bit there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, something that definitely uh, drew me in that I wanted to speak with you about is the the term queer crip. I'd never encountered it before. And would you be able to provide like a brief definition or background of the term? For sure. Um, so queer crip is something that has come up from several places very organically, and it's something that a lot of queer disabled people and like radically politicized disabled people have, um, have kind of identified with, and that's the side that I'm speaking to. Um, I started using it like a number of years back because I was already identifying as queer and as um, like disabled. I used the term cripple in a reclaiming way. And naturally it was just like, this word makes sense to me and just started using it. And from a lot of people that I know who use it, that's a very similar experience. Like um, it wasn't around a single um, political point. It was just that we were, a lot of us were radicalized in similar justice-based and revolution-based politics. Um, the definition of it is really that, um, for me at least, um, is that, I mean, to be crip, first of all, is to be, um, for me, is to be radically political um, and um, recognize the identity of disability in whatever form it takes as a politicizing identity and not just, um, you know, the product of your body and society in a, a built environment, but like um, 
something that's kind of forced upon you by inequality and inequity. Um, and you know, queerness is like this. I mean, we do this whole show on 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 gay and queer and LGBTQ plus politics and whatnot. So yeah, queer brings a similarly radicalized and radical politicized lens to a lot of identity, I think. Um, and yeah, that's where the two kind of come together and go hand in hand and um, where a lot of us define define the whole of queer cripness. Um, would you mind elaborating about the politicized uh, nature of disability? For sure. Yeah, so um, the category of disability actually didn't come about until about, I guess, the Industrial Revolution. Um, before that, like disabled people, what we would now call disabled people, people with mental illnesses, um, various chronic illnesses, etc. I mean, they've always, we've always existed, but like back then it wasn't a category of social interaction and, and kind of an identity or anything. And then industrial revolution happened and came with it the necessity to work in a certain way under capitalism. And that's not like common knowledge. That's not something you learn about when you learn about the Industrial Re Revolution. You don't learn that this whole new subcategory of humanity was created. The political and politicized nature of disability is one that recognizes that disability is um, integral to many of our identities and our ways of moving through the world, interacting with others, and just existing. The same way that Queerness is um, an identity because it's something you innately are or become, and because we've had to organize around rights and justice, um, that is applicable as well to disability. Um, psychiatric survivors, um, people with physical disabilities, people with intellectual or cognitive developmental disabilities, all of these things, um, have required extensive organizing around to get even where we are today, which is still completely insufficient and unjust and inequitable. How did you personally become involved in activism? I've always been pretty, I mean, I'm a pretty outspoken person. Um, I'm pretty loud about certain things, especially my belief that, you know, People deserve uh, more than just equality. We deserve, um, you know, <laughs> justice and the right to live and all of this stuff. And that goes back to like when I, I was very young. Um, and so between bouts of like homelessness and um, generally needing to fight really hard for my own needs to be met as disabled person as a trans person <laughs> um, i think most of us as trans people can kind of be like yeah sometimes it's an up uphill battle um with all of those things like i have always been very involved in community organizing and um yeah sometimes it's been based on necessity or i develop close relationships with um people who are involved in the struggle for their own justice and liberation. Kind of various facets of my like activism or advocacy or general 
organizing um, and, you know, being organized. <laughs> um, like, they all come into play kind of at different points in my life, um, but they all, again, as I said before, like everything I organize with is with disability justice and they all kind of stem from that that point because disability and justice includes everyone and everything at the end of the day that is fading facing a justice-based struggle so i would say i started organizing around disability justice about a decade ago um, and before that i was involved in disability organizing and whatnot i i lived some of my life as a street-based kid as well as youth and um if you're not fighting to survive everyone else around you is um and due to that i i was pretty active on that front um and yeah decade ago i would have been like 14 15 um and got this name for a way of viewing the interconnectedness of justice-based and liberation-based struggles um because prior to finding the name for disability justice i i have adhd and we have like a billion neurons firing at once <laughs> it's like the way our brains are built and a lot of us can't see anything a single issue um if if we one day see everything as connected it we can't turn it off is what I find in community conversations about this. So yeah, having a name for that ADHD billion neuron sensation um, and having people who were actively organizing around the same things as I was, who believed the same politics that I do, um, which, you know, come down to like land back abolition and real equality rather than the equity that we need right now. Yeah. And like all of these amazing people were calling like naming it as disability justice, naming abolition and environmental justice and indigenous sovereignty as integral to disability justice. And that also including like disabled people. <laughs> so a decade for your for your question. Yeah. Could you could you um, elaborate a bit about how they're all interconnected under the umbrella of disability justice? For sure. So there are 10 principles to disability justice. Um, I would recommend people read Patty Burns writing um, via Sins Invalid um, to like read about all of them in detail and whatnot. But one of the principles of disability justice is that, um, you know, we struggle for each other's liberation as well as our own, right? Um, disabled people are in every single community out there. I mean, we are in white supremacist communities and we are there are black disabled people like <laughs> unfortunately we we span the spectrum again same as queerness like unfortunately there have been and still are gay white supremacists um so yeah disability justice is about like knowing that on on a very core level and knowing that all of our struggles are connected by nature of us spanning all communities um approximately 25 percent of the global population is disabled and that number is actually increasing um and is probably low to begin with because disability is such a, a diverse um, group um but because as i said we're part of all of these groups um 
we're impacted by every single social justice issue out there. Um, there are disabled people incarcerated. There are trans women um, doing survival sex work in particular that are disabled. A lot of people in sex work are disabled. So yeah, all of these issues converge at a very obvious point in disability. And obviously they also converge among one another. Um, I mean, we obviously know about how the prison industrial complex targets people of color, especially black people and indigenous people. Um, we also know how it targets poor people, which is also intersects with racialization. Like already, like there are these connections that we're acknowledging and a lot of times we're just not seeing the weave of disability in there. And disability justice necessitates that we do that on both a conscious and subconscious level. What I kind of <laughs> call in my own head is like the body mind level. Yeah, so that's how everything's like connected all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I never really thought about it that way, but it, it absolutely it absolutely is connected that way because I, I you, you see that everything is connected, but there's always that that missing puzzle piece. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Where you're not sure where where it is. Like you're like, yeah. I know that this is going to be connected. I know at some point it's going to be, and often if you sift through down to the bottom of it, if it's nothing else, there's a disability connection. <laughs> you're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> comes in here, knows that there. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know that there was a particular topic that you wanted to speak with me about. So could you tell me a bit about the recently expanded assisted dying laws in Canada? Absolutely. Yeah, I did really want to speak about this because honestly, I've taken on uh, the role of galvanizing queer and trans people on this issue, um, at least in my own as far as my own reach can do that, <laughs> which is not extensive, but it's a start. Um, but just this March, um, a bill went through, Bill C-7, to expand um, medical assistance in dying across Canada. We already have or had legalized assistance in dying um, through Bill C-14, um, which I think comes from 2016, um, which allowed people to apply for medical assistance in death or made um, if their death was considered reasonably foreseeable. So it didn't mean that they had to be terminally ill, but if someone had, you know, if they had cancer and they weren't terminally ill, but they were in their 80s or their 90s, um, and you could kind of be like, yeah, this person might live another, if they survive the cancer, they might live another 10, maybe 20 years, right? Um, then they could apply and potentially qualify for MAID. Um, now, that safeguard of their death having to be reasonably foreseeable has been removed. Um, the qualification for accessing made currently is, um, I mean, there are a number of them, but one of them that was changed through C7 is that um, someone is um, experiencing intolerable suffering um, as 
caused by a medical diagnosis. Um, currently, the sole factor cannot be a mental illness. That's I think that's set to change still in 2023, where an underlying the underlying medical factor can be a mental illness and nothing else. Um, so I've been I've been organizing personally around this for not very long. I haven't waded into these politics because they're very um, personally painful and um, I mean, triggering. Um, a lot of disabled people in particular have trauma around being offered made, even though that was not legal under C-14. Um, and I'm not an exception to that. Um, but back in March, my friend Gabrielle Peters, who's a core organizer around this, along with Catherine Frizee and Trudeau Lemons, I'll drop a bunch of other names I think people should go look up while I'm talking. Um, but these people are, Gabrielle rather, um, was joining up with Catherine Frizee, who's out in Nova Scotia, Brunswick, and I can never remember which one. Um, and they organized what we ended up calling the disability filibuster because that was Catherine's original idea. It was a, a filibuster um, to mainly to bring attention that a lot of disabled voices were not being centered in the conversation around made expansion. Um, it ended up not being quite what one would define as a filibuster and I can't give a succinct definition, so um, apologies, but not uh, a traditional filibuster, but we did quite a lengthy Zoom call and series of things <laughs> that I could expand on. Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah, Gabrielle, or I call her G, and Catherine organized this against C7, and it ended up being disabled people from across Canada and internationally. Um, tuning in for like art and Trudeau Lemons gave a fantastic like uh, legal like presentation is the word um, on on C7 and and its um, potential ramifications for disabled people not actually wanting to access made but potentially being coerced into it or for like intellectually disabled people um, not being given full information. Um, we explored a lot during the filibuster. Um, it's all archived at, or not all of it, but most of it is archived at disabilityfilibuster.ca or org. If you look up the disability filibuster website on Google, it'll do the thing. But yeah, there's like book readings. Um, I hosted just by nature of uh, most people being in bed and whatnot and me wanting to get some queer crip voices on the on the stream uh, for sure. Um, I hosted a, a few late night <laughs> filibuster is what we ended up jokingly calling it. Um, where, you know, queer crips just talked about being in poverty, being queer, our concerns with made. There were a lot of jokes because dark humor is necessary. But this thing was organized in a weekend and was radically accessible um, or tried to be. 
uh, we organized on what's called or what we refer to as Crip Time. There's a really good essay by that name. Um, can't remember the author, but it's a really good essay and it expands on queer time. Um, but Crip Time just being, you know, as our bodies and minds allow. <laughs> um, but it did come together in a weekend. Um, and then we were subject to like a number of Zoom bombings on the Monday that we launched, um, targeted by like right wing white supremacists. And we got it back up, I think by Wednesday. Um, and I'm basing that thought off of uh, <laughs> medical appointments. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was like really pulled together last minute because that was like the week of some of the decision making um, around this finalization of made. Um, and we we're like, okay, this is one last push. So that's when I got involved in like this fight against made was my original point. I'm a little bit rambling here and I hope people can follow um, when they listen. Yeah, that's when I originally got involved in fighting made. I do really want to emphasize that people like Gabrielle, um, Catherine, um, Trudeau Lemons, um, the entirety of the People First organization in, that um, organizes around deinstitutionalization of disabled people, especially intellectually disabled people, is really important to mention because intellectually disabled voices very we get very rarely get centered in a lot of disability organizing, even that of disability justice. Um, and like that's a really big place that needs to be changed. And yeah, they've been really involved in fighting eugenics is what made this made expansion is um, in Canada for a long time. Yeah, um, would you mind elaborating on some of the problems and flaws with the expansion? Totally. So for people who previously qualified under made, um, who, um, whose deaths are considered reasonably foreseeable, they no longer have a wait period between um, like being told that they have been approved for MAID um, and accessing it. Uh, a doctor can, like if you get your, your second physician um, to sign off on your request, um, you can access MAID the same day. And that was something that was really pushed for by the groups that were lobbying for this expansion, which include disabled people, um, and really fought by those of us um, who are very against it. And the reasoning on, on the pro-made <laughs> um, side of things is that waiting for someone whose death is reasonably foreseeable often you are thinking of terminally ill people, having any wait period um, extends suffering, but it's a safeguard and it's a safeguard for a reason because without that safeguard, it, it's another step towards potential coercion that we already see. Um, it means that you can access made way before you can ever 
get proper social supports. Um, a lot of disabled people live in poverty. The majority of disabled people live in poverty. Um, it takes way longer to access housing support um, or get a wheelchair than it takes to access MAID. And even um, for people who are who now qualify for MAID, whose death is not reasonably foreseeable, but they they are suffering intolerably, uh, to use the language of, of the bill, it's only a 90-day wait. And that's still, I mean, housing supports can take years, if not decades, for a lot of us, especially when you need accessible housing or you need home health care before you can be discharged from a rehab facility. And if you don't have those things set up, you're sent to a long-term care home, which are understood by disabled people um, organizing around abolition as a carceral system that is not unlike prison. Um, the conditions of many long-term care homes, again, most uh, are abhorrent. Um, they don't take care of people. Um, a lot of times you can't have partners either within the long-term care home, like two residents cannot be together, um, or you can't have visitors, um, including like your own spouses on occasion, especially during COVID. So yeah, this is a safeguard. The, the wait period is a safeguard that is now removed and made continues to be accessed by people who are very clear that they don't want to be dying. They just have no other choice at this point. Um, that's, you know, that's suicidal ideation that a lot of mentally ill people who are like largely many of us are, um, you know, socially marginalized, oppressed. We live in an inequitable, unjust society. And that leads to suicidal ideation because sometimes genuinely you can't do anything more for yourself. And instead of offering support in this very specific case, um, there isn't even, I mean, I would say that like most clear support that's offered for suicidal ideation um, is inadequate and, and is like very much a show or a platform or you know something to get someone elected for something um but th there isn't even a pretend to it in the case of disabled people um there's no oh we should help these people who are experiencing suicidal ideation because their world is built against them um instead it's legally ratified that we can access medical assistance in dying. So that's, you know, the overall issue with MAID really is that um, with this expansion, uh, the government is saying that disabled people, our suicidal ideation is reasonable and shouldn't be supported in fighting. Um, so I, th I think it's, like me saying it's triggering is, is quite literal, even in the original therapy definition of triggering. Um, yeah. So what's what's the goal? I mean, the goal at this point is to get it de-ratified, removed. Um, the way through to that goal is now, instead of fighting this thing coming into, into law, we have to prove that it violates 
the, the rights of disabled people. And there are several avenues for that. Um, you have to go through each of them before you can reach the UN. So um, I think first we are filing human rights um, violation under Canada's protection of disabled people. Um, I'm not a legal person. <laughs> Trudeau Lemons, again, I really, it's his segment is archived on the filibuster website. Um, but my understanding is that, yeah, we have to go through the Canadian protections um, of disabled people, which don't have a lot of teeth. Um, yeah, there's just not very much to the protection of disabled people in Canada. And that's the case for a lot of countries. But if it fails, we can go to the next step and continue upward until whatever point we reach the UN. Obviously, we want we wanted to fight it while it was, you know, going into law because <laughs> that's a little bit simpler and faster. Um, and the concern is that like more people will and are accessing made um, for social injustice reasons rather than them actually believing they are at the end of whatever they're able to do. Um, yeah, so right now, um, I can't, I can't actually talk about some of this in full right now, but there are some organizing efforts to move towards those human rights fights, that side of things, um, and get like both uh, official information and anecdotal community information on people's experiences, accessing or not accessing made, but accessing other supports and the inequity that's at play right now and why this expansion should be struck down. Yeah, we're, a lot of us are putting in a lot of time again to, to do the digging that, that's required of us to get these human rights concerns heard. The UN, I mean, being the goal is both because kind of the highest you can go I guess in international politics um, for fixing these things and it has the convention on the rights of people with disabilities um, so the CRPD we already had a special rapporteur from the UN say that this expansion violates that convention, but it still went ahead. And you know, it's something we quite often see is whether or not the UN can actually be effective in certain countries due to those countries kind of, you know, having enough resources to ignore the UN and not worry about their own status. Um, thinking of, you know, most of uh, Canada, states, Europe, um, where, yeah, like international involvement isn't going to impact us in the same way that it would in um, destabilized countries. I guess the hope is that the UN does something more concrete if we do end up reaching them. Um, I think it's obvious that we don't have faith in the other levels before the UN. The, the goal is that the UN does something more concrete towards supporting and um, uh, enforcing disabled rights in Canada. Yeah, uh, going all the way to the UN, that sounds like a path that 
will take a rather long time and be disheartening to say the least. Yeah. So what can um, other people do to support in the meantime? Yes. So what I said at the beginning is like, I want to galvanize queer and trans people on this. And, you know, there's, there's one side of me that's like, I mean, we should all be involved in this however we can, like supporting people who are directly fighting it, um, showing up to any kind of in-person or online gatherings against these things. Like those are ways to, to support in one side, but like we haven't seen a lot of that from queer and trans community that don't already have an investment in disabled people. Um, a lot of people just don't show up for disabled people um so part of me says like solidarity <laughs> like you should just be invested because disabled people and therefore queer disabled people will be impacted um but the other side knows that like sometimes that's difficult and we have to make prioritizations in our head that you know we can't necessarily justify to everyone around us and also this is something like near and dear to me so i think that everyone needs to get on it but I also have a very honest and upsetting fact to remind queer and trans people of, even if they're not personally impacted by what we typically think of as disability, is that like the, our queer trans community has been impacted by eugenics because eugenics is not actually about disability. It's about, you know, deviation from a white supremacist expectation. And that has been used to target queer and trans people historically and up to this day. We're going to see the expansion of this bill impact queer and trans people disproportionately. Like queer people face homelessness more than our non-queer peers, um, queer and trans people. I include trans as queer, not everyone does, that's why I keep saying both, but I'm just going to say queer now because I do. But queer people are like recorded as experiencing homelessness at a far greater number. 25 to 40% is the latest statistic. Queer youth who were surveyed and um, reported experiencing some form of homelessness. Um, that's from Trans Pulse, I think back in, well, might be as recent as 2020. That's, that's a huge number. 25 to 40% of queer youth experiencing homelessness is way too high. Um, I can't off the top of my head give a number for non-queer youth. Um, the other side of it is that, you know, non-queer youth uh, do not get surveyed for uh, levels of homelessness at quite the rate because they don't need to be all the time because overwhelmingly uh, people accessing youth services are queer um, and racialized and disabled. You know, we, we experiencing disabil experience disability, about 19% of um, queer people were surveyed as um, experiencing some form of disability. And that number jumped when that was specified as mental illness. Um, I think it was 43% I identified as either being mad, mentally ill, or a psychiatric survivor. Um, so yeah, these are, these are really high numbers. And when the 2023 sunset clause 
comes into play, people will be able to qualify for MAID on the basis of mental illness alone, as I said. And that is going to affect queer people, especially multiply marginalized queer people, a lot. A lot of us experience mental illness, and a lot of us don't see hope, depending on where we live, especially. A lot of us don't have support and don't have, you know, the the material affirmation that our lives matter to those around us and that we're not wrong for who we are. You know, I, I you lived in Vancouver recently and <laughs> it's a very different story um, in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, you know, it's very much a queer city. I currently live in Chilliwack and it's not. We're considered the Bible Belt of BC. Um, and I've lived in rural Alberta. Um, these places aren't queer affirming. And, you know, living in a hostile environment is a great way to trigger mental illness and suicidal ideation, which, you know, yeah, just destroys people uh, for, for years. So, yeah, the number of us impacted by disability and and mental illness is really high. And we don't want to be seeing our queer siblings, like queer youth. Um, I mean, they have to be 18 plus, but we don't want to be seeing our peers um, dying when they don't have to be. And that goes for like older adults as well who grew up in these hostile environments and still have like a lot of internalized shame and fear. and life hardships so what i want from queer people is to show up for the fight um you might be able to hear my dog walking around <laughs> i'm not sure but yeah i want queer people to show up for this fight and i want queer people from cities especially to be showing up for this because it's rural queer people who are going to be suffering the most um you know i want people to understand where eugenics come from. Um, and I mean, it, it comes from Canada and the States. Um, it was exported and then re-imported, but it comes from here. And it affects so many of us. I want queer people to like care about disabled queers, <laughs> really. Like I want queer, like non-disabled queer people, people who don't have chronic illnesses, invisible illnesses, um, mental illnesses, neurodivergencies, like there is such a broad definition of disability and people who aren't impacted by them at all or have not yet recognized the political nature of the, the ways that they are disabled, they need to, <laughs> we need to care. We need to, you know, stretch ourselves a little bit uh, and maybe organize and, and show up for each other. Um, that's, my idea of like community is exactly that you can't be in community with me and not realize that this is like life or death um and that the life matters like that is important and it's important to me and it should be important to like the broad you of queer people <laughs> um yeah that's that's what i want <laughs> Thank you.
You are listening to Gaywire on CJSR 88.5 FM in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta, colonially known as Edmonton. You just heard myself, Terrence Adams, speaking with Q Lawrence about MAID, disability justice, and how queer and trans issues are inherently connected to this. It is important to remember that to the systems of power, deviance is deviance, whether that be trans, racialized, disabled, etc. The ways in which these groups are affected may look different, but the larger sentiment remains the same. That sentiment is that deviance doesn't have a place in this world. We, of course, do have a place in this world, and we need community to combat feelings of isolation. Community, radical care, mutual aid, and kinship. These things are the things that will help us survive. Self-care and community care, it's all integral for community survival and our ability to thrive. And to learn more about MAID, Bill C-7, Disability Justice, check out disabilityfilibuster.ca and watch archive footage of past sessions and slash or register for upcoming ones. Also, donate. It is not free to make this radically accessible in this capitalist world, so if you can donate, please do, as it helps the sessions continue. And with that, I must bring this first episode in the Disability Justice series with Q Lawrence to a close. Thank you so, so, so very much to Q for all of your work, wisdom, time, care, and dedication. Please tune in next week, same time, same place, that being Thursdays at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on CJSR 88.5 FM, of course, or you can catch us anytime on your favorite podcasting platform by searching for Gaywire CJSR. Again, please donate to both the disabilityfilbuster.ca and Q's wheelchair fundraiser if you are able. The links to those are in the link tree in our Instagram bio, which is, of course, at GaywireCJSR. And if you're unable to donate, do not fret. There are other ways to, um, there are other ways to support. There are other ways to help. So register with disabilityfilibuster.ca, watch the archive videos, learn, do the reading, share Q's link. We can all do our part, whatever that looks like. Today's show was produced by Jao Victor Krieger, Ash Linda, Artemis Peasley, and myself, Terrence Adams. Gaywire is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, colonially known as Edmonton, land which has been the home and traveling ground of many, including, but not limited, to the Blackfoot, Anishinaabe, Nakoto Sioux, Soto, Dene, Cree, and Métis people. All of us at Gaywire encourage you to think critically about the structures of power we reside within, your role in and around them, and what you can do to challenge the damaging legacies and mechanisms of colonialism in your day-to-day. Reconciliation is not a one-time thing, it's an ongoing practice. Please check out some of the amazing Indigenous folks that we've interviewed to learn more about decolonization, traditional tattooing, and what it means to be two-spirit by checking out the interviews with Gabe Calderon and Ashley Cardinal, or by doing your own research. Please tune in next week to hear more Prairie Queer content, and until then, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. You can find us online at gaywire.transistor.fm, and on Facebook, Twitter, at Gaywire, and at GaywireCJSR on Instagram and TikTok.
Let us know what you think of the show. Hit up the DM sometime. Or if you'd rather be fancy, you can also email gaywire at cjsr.com. And you never know, you just might get to be a part of the show. Our artwork is by Travis Erickson. Our original music by Doug Hoyer and Catherine Hiltz. Until next week, keep it breezy. Please stay on the line.